Welcome to the Expat Empire Podcast, the podcast where you can hear from expats around the world and learn how you can join them. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us today on the Expat Empire Podcast. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that we're offering a free consulting call to anyone interested in moving abroad. Whether you're thinking about retiring somewhere warm, starting an international career, or becoming a digital nomad, we're ready to help you think through the next steps in your journey. Send us a message at expatempire.com to schedule your call today. With that said, let's start the conversation. Hey, Dinasha, thanks for joining us today on the Expat Empire podcast. Hey, David, thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, it's great to connect with you again. We've uh, worked together in the past in Japan and our paths split and diverged a bit and you've had a lot of interesting experiences since then. So it's a pleasure to catch up and of course, to hear about everything that's happened in the, the intervening years. Yeah, it's definitely good to see you and remember some of those experiences we had. It's great. Absolutely. So let's get into it. And of course, first, I'd love to know a bit more about your background and everywhere you've lived around the world. So if you could tell us where you're originally from, where around the world you've lived so far, and where you're currently based, that would be great. Sure. Uh, well, I guess the tale goes dates back to my parents being immigrants from Sri Lanka, and they came and settled in the U.S., became U.S. citizens. I was born in the U.S., grew up in California. And other than travel, never really you know, uprooted because we had come so far. And, you know, went through school and and college all in in the California area. And then, you know, started my career and came across an opportunity, you know, kind of had checked all the boxes, you know, got married, had a kid, was living in the suburbs and sort of looked up and went, is this it? You know, (laughs) it's just felt this titanic kind of shift of wanting to do something different and rip the bandaid off. And that's when my husband decided to raise his hand. He works in insurance for an overseas opportunity and it just moved so quickly. We had no idea with, you know, I envisioned Paris, Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) but when, when he came home and he was like Tokyo and I'm like, Tokyo, Oh my gosh, I have no clue about, you know, it's, culture or um, the industry there. So just started doing research and, you know, it was seemed like a blink that we were loading up and heading to Japan and, and embarked on what was ended up being an experience of a lifetime for sure. When we first headed out, I was unable to transfer with, with my work um, work in tech mm-hmm. and so I got there thinking I would just be a trailing spouse. And there's a lot of, you know, things that come with that, mm-hmm. you know, when you're leaving a career and now you're a trailing spouse and, you know, didn't speak the language, immediately entered into taking Japanese mm-hmm. and explored and was enjoying that, but always felt like I'm just that a career person. Right. Like, it was just something that was drawing me back in. So I was able to actually register with some foreign recruiting agencies in Japan. And, you know, 
I was in the, surrounded by the likes of women who had MBAs and worked for Johnson and Johnson and, you know, are these like accomplished women who were also at home with their children and were resigned to the fact of, you know, this is sort of what being a trailing spouse of an expat um, life was going to be. And so they looked at me like I was a little bit crazy that I was actually looking for a job. Right. I managed to register my resume and have like introductional interviews with recruiting firms and wondered if I would get to ever have an opportunity since I didn't speak Japanese. And lo and behold, you know, I got a call from Asics Sportswear and company is a Japanese company and was able to get a role, you know, kind of a ground level role. And it wasn't about the money. It was about, you know, assimilating into the workforce in Japan, which is such a core part of their culture. Mm -hmm. And that was embarking on a completely different experience in Japan. I had already been there for 17 months as a sort of a mother, you know, mother working through the community, volunteering at the school. And to shift gears to now, you know, working eight hour days and, and plugging into, you know, ja- Japanese workforce right. was a whole new experience, which you're familiar with. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think I walked in those doors and you were sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forgot about the timing exactly. But, but yeah, it's definitely was an interesting experience for both of us. I'm glad we were able to go through that. And yeah, so, so where did things kind of head for you from there in terms of other assignments? abroad and, and, and where you're kind of based today. Yeah. So from there, you know, continued to live and work and enjoy the, the just Japan is so rich. It's, you know, people from the outside see it as a very insular place, but with that comes this preservation of just a pristine culture and landscape and such just such a beautiful design, art, the way that they approach everything, even mm-hmm. just like, I remember I went to the store and I ordered deli meat and they had wrapped it in this beautiful envelope with a seal on it. And I <laughs> yeah. was like, wow, this is the best deli meat I've ever bought. <laughs> <laughs> but from there, you know, lived and worked for almost five years mm. in Japan and when my husband started to get a little bit of an itch again and into, you know, once you get a taste of working abroad and all the opportunities that it brings you, it definitely compressed his level in the company mm. between him and like sea level, because, you know, they are more hands on deck with other ge- emerging geos or uh, outside geos from the U S. So he started to get exposure and mm. opportunities bubbling up in other places, which is when he decided to take an opportunity in, in the Southeast Asian market in Singapore. Mm. And I fortunately had the support at ASICS of management to get a transfer and was able to transfer to Singapore. And we moved from a beautiful four pristine seasons to (laughs) totally humid, tropical heat. (laughs) 
but Singapore as well, they have their own unique culture and just a very, they, they manage to have their own utopia mm-hmm. there that they keep very clean and orderly and everyone's happy, you know, right. living and working. And so we, we rerouted there and settled into central Singapore in the orchard area and uh, embarked on our journey there for three years mm-hmm. before coming back to the U.S., mm-hmm. which was also just a, a big decision. I'm sure. And, and a, yeah, a big shift <laughs> once again. Absolutely. So now, of course, you're back in the States and, and things are quite you know different there from when you left and so on. But I definitely want to dive into sort of your journey as you were talking in the beginning about you know, setting everything up and sort of having that lifestyle there in the United States before Japan and that opportunity came along. And you had your career based in the U.S. as well. And so I'm sure, you know, as you were talking about it before, this idea of a trailing spouse and not being sure if you'd be able to or if you'd want to or how you would be able to tackle trying to enter the Japanese job market. So what was going through your head in those early days and, you know, in those ensuing months as you were gearing up to try to figure out how you could enter the market and, and also the other voices you were hearing, like you said, maybe other, other spouses that looked, you know, thought you were a bit crazy or thinking of something, you know, doing something a bit out of the ordinary compared to what they had experienced or seen in other foreigners that had moved abroad with their families. Yeah. Yeah. I think I definitely went through a, phases of awakenings, uh, rude awakenings, you know, when I was still in the U.S. trying to transfer and speaking with management Mm -hmm. at my company. And, you know, they tried to connect with our counterpart team in in Japan. And it was just, you know, not going to happen. And they had to break the news to me that they were like, we're sorry, we, we would love to retain you, but we just can't, you know, place you over there. And it was a blow, you know, it, and it was, it was a kind of a shift in, in like my beliefs of having to sort of follow my husband, Mm. you know, like Mm. there's almost like a sacrifice, a compromise there. Right. But yeah, like a leap of faith, But there's so, you know, once you touch down in a new country, there's just, you're so consumed with settling in, setting up house, you know, figuring out how to get your paperwork and your visa and everything situated that that, that consumed me. Right. And then also being able to just explore. I mean, there was so much to see and do and boxes to check and learning the language that, you know, it it deferred me for a, a significant amount of time diving into all of that and holding down the fort at home while he was setting in, settling into his job where, you know, he had a translator mm. earpiece that he wore all day. And so he was also dealing with a lot of, you know, cultural in, shifts in the workplace. And So I didn't really think about it Mm -hmm. as much once I touched down in Japan. But then as the time started to pass, I was like, there's got to be something more here. And I actually went into consulting at first. I was writing a blog for a uh, website that catered to uh, foreigners. Mm -hmm. And it was just like 
things to see and do and foods and recipes and sort of an all encompassing what to do in Tokyo website that I was writing for. And it, it just sort of lit the fire of, all right, I want to start looking at things that I can do outside of just being the trailing spouse. But yeah, I I did confide in some of my friends at the time who were other moms that I, we were working with the school on a lot of like event planning and, and when I got the offer from ASICS, I actually was debating taking Mm. it. And my, one of my friends who was not working in Japan, but held, you know, pretty high positions back in the U S was, was like, you should do it. Just, you know, (laughs) take it. (laughs) And I really felt like I was a, it stuck out. Like there weren't a whole lot of moms Mm. that were working other than there were, there were moms who were expats. Mm. And then the dad was at home. Right. Yeah, you know, it was it was kind of the the setup, right? And you'd see yeah. the dad walking around and drop off and pick up. Right. So it, it was kind of like that was the formula, I think. But it was in, drastically different mm. in Singapore. Mm. In Singapore, all the moms work mm. and different dynamic. I think in Japan for Japanese native, you know moms and and women they typically after they start a family most of them hang up their mm. hat on mm. their careers right i think that they're moving toward change on that and I, I i think that there's desire to be able to hold career and and be your own self-sufficient woman mm-hmm. there and i hope that they you know make progress on that in Singapore, it's wildly different. I mean, women are just in the workforce. They're out there. They're more in your face about it. A lot of conferences and mm. women's conferences. Right. I joined the Lean In Circle mm. while I was there, which was, you know, coached on executive leadership and was the communities and women and leaders and just interesting, like, comparison and in, in the, the women like communities between both countries. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Definitely quite different. And it's yeah. interesting how that played out in your career as well and your experiences in both countries. So how did you actually go about finding these opportunities, whether it was in Japan or in Singapore, as, you know, sort of the quote unquote trailing spouse to use that phrase. But given that you weren't, you know, necessarily just set up with a job there through your husband's company. And of course he was the sort of driving force behind the move in terms of, of his career in the insurance business. How did you find those opportunities and ultimately to get them, especially in a competitive market like Japan, where you didn't speak the language fluently, you didn't have the cultural context as much as a local person would have. So it'd be great to hear about how you made it happen. Yeah, I think in Japan, getting the job at ASICS was very kind of mechanical process and getting the contract signed. And and I learned a lot and was probably made a lot of beginner amateur mistakes around that. When I moved to Singapore, I quickly realized in my ASICS job that I had lost out in a lot of autonomy and ability Mm. to drive impact to the business because I moved from the headquarters to a region Mm. that was small and had little access 
compared to where I was before. So I very quickly realized that it was probably time to start using my advantage of being in Singapore mm-hmm. where it, there are much more avenues to exploring job opportunities and career opportunities and making a change there. People are hopping around all over. We had a lot of U.S. startups and um, Australian, European companies that have set up shop in Singapore. It's really a bustling hub. And just that set of markets there in the Southeast Asia are just like huge growth potential for most companies. So I quickly realized that I should make a move Hmm. and was able to use all the general channels that you could, you know, we have at our fingertips here in the U.S. And very quickly, I think in less than a year, I was able to move on Hmm to a startup, a mobile marketing startup. And it was set up in a very modern fashion. They were in a kind of a WeWork type space in this beautiful building downtown. We had rented out a corner of the, of a floor and was once again exposed to a, a nice melting pot of cultures and backgrounds. Singapore is just like people from everywhere. Mm-hmm. so a far more of uh, us expat uh, presence in Singapore versus Japan. Right. And it sounds like in Japan, you were able to get that job at ASICS through a recruiter. Did you also find the recruiting companies to be helpful to you in Singapore as well? Or was it just a, a cultural factor that made that aspect, that, that route to find a job in Japan easier compared to maybe in, in Singapore? Yeah, I did actually kept some of my network of recruiter contacts who had also made a move from Tokyo to Singapore. I was able to get my second job I held in in Singapore, Mm -hmm. or actually third, uh, was at a paid media agency. And the recruiter that placed me there, actually, I had met her in Tokyo. Mm. So the transient is sort of, you know, amongst all of the, the different industries. It helps as far as like making contacts and keeping contacts. And I found it interesting too, that I think ASICs as they tried to transfer me really would not offer me any type of expat benefits unless I relinquished my husband's expat package. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah. So their view was that only one of us should have an expat package, <laughs> yeah. which unfortunately their package paled in comparison right. <laughs> to my husband's. So I had to turn that down. Yeah. That probably would not have been the and, best decision, right? <laughs> and they definitely made adjustments based on their currency exchange, their view of living cost. So, you know, there were a lot of points of contention yeah. around that, that transition. And I think that also in Asian countries, they, they know when you're a trailing spouse and they, they take that into consideration in the, the type of offer salary mm. range that they're offering you. They know that you're, you know, secondary income. Right. And uh, I think there is some discrimination around mm. that. Mm. And so you were able to actually, of course, initially keep that job uh, at ASICS from Japan when moving to Singapore. Looking back at it now, given those challenges that you just talked about in terms of negotiating and, and the way they viewed you and so on, do you think that was 
the right decision in terms of getting set up there in Singapore with it? Or going back, uh, would you have sort of maybe cut it in Japan and then tried to go straight into something new in Singapore after arriving? I think it afforded me a, a little bit more of a smoother transition mm-hmm. to have stayed, you know, keep kept the company I was at or with constant. And they actually were doing some pretty interesting and fun community type uh, things in Singapore. So it helped me sort of branch out, make some friends, get acquainted. The Singapore office also was very Singaporean, like culture-wise and work style. Even the foods that they would Mm. eat at lunch, you know, I would join them. (laughs) And so it, it was overall the experience, I think was worth it even if I may have lost like financially Mm. in the, in the transition, but, and then it gave me a stepping stone to really start looking around and saying, getting the lay of the land because everything's concentrated in that central Mm. financial district area. And so you very quickly can see like, okay, there's a lot of opportunities here and, you know, happy hours after work. It's very, the, the place is pumping. So it's, you know, really easy to start building a network when you get, when you touch down. So I think it kind of all panned out the way it needed to pan out. Yeah, that makes sense. So first you were working and building your career in Silicon Valley. So working a lot of tech companies there, then you made your way to Japan and ultimately uh, to Singapore and, and back to the United States. But I'm curious about what it was like, if you could compare the difference in the working culture, the day-to-day culture at the office between the Bay Area and a tech company there, and then in Japan, and of course, Singapore as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, you know, I think the one thing that paralleled really uh, between the US and Japan was the work ethic, you know, immediately upon walking into, and and I have a, a little bit of a edge case experience in Japan because, you know, I didn't walk into a floor of 300 Japanese people sitting there like my husband did. I walked into an office in Shibuya, which is pretty central in Tokyo, of a bunch of transplants that were from, we were, we used to call ourselves the zoo. And I think what ASICS headquarters uh, set out to do was to really kind of hire a more diverse globalized team in order for, and many of us spoke perfect Japanese, your present (laughs) company included here, others of us, not so much, but I think the whole goal was for us to help globalize the company because much of their transactional revenue was happening overseas. So it was happening in the U S it was happening in Australia. And so they needed a team on the ground in Tokyo that could really rally the regions together. The regions were operating very uniquely in their own space and running their own brands pretty much. And so I think it was a really impressive move by a Japanese company to create a diverse team like ourselves that came together and and help like globalize the company, unify the company. And we made a lot of headway doing that. But To answer your question, you know, because of that differentiation, it was very unique. And so Mm -hmm. when I walked in, there was a little of little comfort in 
you know, my, my manager was French. Yeah. (laughs) We had a, we had a Venezuelan, we had a Swedish, we had some America, a few Americans, handful of Americans, which was quite in in ratio and number with how many Americans actually were in Tokyo, Mm -hmm. which I want to say at the time I had learned from my blog, it was only like 15, 16,000 Americans that they were targeting as far as their, their like email. Mm -hmm. We were definitely quite a few number sitting in that office. So I don't know if it's the reflective of like the real true Mm. immersion in the Japanese workplace, but I did get a sense of that when we would visit headquarters Mm. in Kobe. Oh yeah. So we'd go to headquarters in Kobe is when I was like eyes wide, just seeing, you know, they have a bell that chimes for for breaks everybody's sort of dressed you know somberly and a lot of rules are followed the cafeteria is like being back in college Mm -hmm. you know it's meetings are very structured and not a lot is revealed of what people really think I think that's a huge mm. difference between Americans and Japanese. Japanese are much more calculated and strategic in the way that they share their opinions and make decisions. Right. That could probably be to a fault in some cases, but our, our way is also to a fault in many cases where it, we're very consensus driven and everybody's voicing their opinion and there's no reservation. So that was interesting as well, but I feel like it led to when decisions were made, it was like a very like strong, firm movement in a certain direction for better or for worse. I also got to work on a team that was helping with the Olympics Mm -hmm. and Japan is, you know, we just had 2020 (laughs) Olympics in 2021, but just the commitment and the, the history, like the rich history that went into sponsoring the Olympics, being part of the Olympics, and then now working into hosting the Olympics. It was really cool to watch, you know, just the design and the artistry that went into our brand and our presence at the Olympics. It was very like a very cool way to learn about Mm -hmm. Japanese. Yeah, that was definitely a good spot to be in to be able to see it happening on an international stage. And yeah, as you said, working across all these global teams, it was certainly not your typical, I think, you know, work experience in Japan. But as you said, you know, we, it, we were still working for a Japanese company and there were many points along the way, along the weeks and months and years that, you know, we could see and feel some of the influence of the Japanese uh, headquarter and the fact that we were in Japan, even if not the main office, right? Yeah, I think we always, you know, we may have had our own approach, direction, ideas, but we always at some point hit the, okay, Japanese, you know, decision making here. Mm -hmm. That was always the reality that we were at a Japanese company. Right. And and then as you transitioned in the same company, for that matter, first into Singapore, and of course, at other work experiences at other companies in Singapore as well, how did you you know, see it change from, you know, Japan to Singapore. They're in the same rough region of the world, more or less, let's say. 
obviously very different from the Bay Area still, but I can imagine there was a big uh, cultural shift that you felt the workplace as well. Yeah, it's, I think in Singapore, they did a really good job of, they were Singaporean through and through. I mean, that office, they celebrated their, their culture, their holidays, their being together. The camaraderie was really like similar to Japan. Mm -hmm. Everybody eat lunch together and, but different in the way that they honored Japan's design and and commitment to the brand but in their own way mm. and they had their own flair to the way that they approached their business and they also had this unique i think i it's akin to europe because you know europe has to deal with all these different markets and languages and i think other countries take that for granted mm. like how drastically different, you know, the populations are. And Southeast Asia has the same challenge, you know, the Philippines or Vietnamese and, you know, Indians. It's just like completely different. You get grouped into one region mm -hmm. and it's just yeah. like <laughs> absolutely not, right. <laughs> doesn't apply. One message doesn't apply at all. So that was really a learning experience for me to start to recognize, wow, like there's just these people are all so different from each other. And, and one thing that I really also was impressed with in Singapore is it truly is a hub and a, and a very welcomed space to all of those markets. Mm -hmm. And you see the presence of everybody and I blended in. Right. <laughs> which was an interesting, it was an interesting thing for me because, you know, I'm American. I sound American. I was born and raised in America, but I look Sri Lankan. There's a ton of Sri Lankans who are in Singapore working and living. It's a typical migration path for freedom and opportunity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, I started to realize that I didn't know how to introduce myself anymore. Mm -hmm. And you know, I did, you know, in America, I would say I'm Sri Lankan, but I, mm -hmm. out there, I couldn't really say I'm Sri Lankan. I had to say I'm American. Mm -hmm. Right, <laughs> right. right. But that Singapore is very welcoming and they celebrate everyone's holidays, you know, yeah. the Hindus, the Christians. So you get to observe that and take part in all of the celebrations in the different areas of, of, the, of the city and just learn so much around, around that. It's not like a one-sided view of of the calendar year. Yeah. And, and as you were saying, I mean, I, at least I felt this way going to Japan as well, is that just from your, just from the way that you look, just when they see you on the street, they can kind of probably get a pretty good sense that we're not Japanese, you know, by origin, they might, you know, maybe somewhere way back or they might think something like that, but probably not, um, you know, most recent generation. Whereas if you go to a more, you know, let's say more international, certainly, you know, welcoming all different cultures type of place like Singapore, you know, yeah, you, you, you do run into that question of, are you, you know, are you local or are you maybe from, you know, a nearby country or things like that? So did it feel, I don't know, obviously you were grappling with some of those differences between the two countries, but it, did it feel somehow more like home, even from that perspective, or would you not necessarily say that and go that far? It, 
it felt more relative. Like, it, you know, I had, I had been to Sri Lanka many times in my childhood growing up and, you know, being closely connected to my family, I've had close ties with my roots and my culture, but you know, you, there, there's a definitely a dynamic there where you feel like you're a fish out of water yeah. and you don't, you don't belong, but you should. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, I definitely grappled with it in certain situations, right. you know, where I would, you know, if I would be surrounded by Indians and Sri Lankans and we're having conversation and, and they just couldn't believe they're like, so you've never lived there. Right. <laughs> I've never, I've never lived there. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is that really your accent or are you just putting it on? You know? Right. Right. So, a little bit of an identity crisis at times, but also just wonderful to be so close. You know, mm-hmm. I made a, a lot of trips to Sri Lanka. I visited mm-hmm. my family, I saw my grandmother. It was a few hour flight. Nice. And so I never had that luxury growing up. So that was great. And did you have sort of a nice culture shock experience or I don't know, international experience to move from a country where the language is just so difficult and, you know, hard to break into, to a country where English is extremely widely spoken, you know, it's sort of the common tongue across so many cultures and obviously probably helped you in your career to find those next opportunities as well. So what was that like? Did it feel like a breath of fresh air? It definitely did. When we touched down, you know, we looked to place our kids at the, there's amazing international and there was an American school there, the Singapore American school, which had been around since 1950, large campus, like a college campus. And, you know, one of the things that they had talked about was how in the early 1950s, they had mandated teaching English in all of the schools across Singapore. And, you know, it seems like that decision in comparison to Japan is really what eventually, you know, widespread the ability to speak English, Mm. which is great. But by and large, most people had that advantage of they didn't just speak English, Mm. right? Right. So you would hear in the workplace, you'd hear Hindi being spoken or, or Mandarin or, you know, so there, everybody had, you know, a couple languages at least in their arsenal Mm -hmm. so i didn't have that advantage unfortunately with i had my basic japanese that (laughs) helped me maybe a little here or there but not enough (laughs) sure sure so it sounds like it was you know quite a good fit for you there you and your family had the great schools you know you were building your career alongside your husband's career as well so how did it end up being that you moved back to the united states and what sort of decision making process did you go through to make that decision you know, it's it's an interesting journey for us foreigners when we're abroad. I think we all face the constant sort of tides inside of us of, should I go back? Oh, you went back for the holidays and you saw some old friends and you, you, you there's like delusions of grandeur mm-hmm. going on there. And it, you know, it continued to be sort of this haunting voice to both of us over the years that just got bigger and louder and louder and louder. Finally, we were, we were thinking, oh, you know, maybe it's time. And, you know, my husband got 
an opportunity. You just kind of, it's funny how you, you think about things mm-hmm. enough, you put it out in the universe mm-hmm. enough and it, a kernel is born, you know, right. and it just, that's kind of what happened. And I think we thought about it and we talked about it too much and <laughs> so, something came along. You got what you were thinking then, about, whether you wanted it or not. And then we went, right. here it is. Let's do it. Right. So got something back in California and actually my husband's manager in Tokyo hmm. who had lived in Tokyo for 11 years up in the top, ta- those uh, Rapungi towers. Mm-hmm he had made his way back to California and he's actually not from California, but so he was living and working in California. And so that he had the open door um, for my husband. He mm. was like, Hey, why don't you come back? You know, you can work for me. So my husband actually is still to this day working for him. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And I basically just left my job that I was at in at the paid media agency in Singapore. I just, shut it down. You know, I just felt like I I didn't want to go through the heavy lift of the transition. And this was going back home and it just felt like I needed to just pull the plug and just pack up and, and figure this out. So that's what I did. I just pulled the plug and, and, um, headed back out to the U S with no plan. Hmm. (laughs) And how long did it take for you to figure out your next plans from there? Did you did you just take it easy for a while or did you just jump right back into it? Just eager to get back into the San Francisco tech scene. Yeah. You know, I'm always trying to take it easy and then <laughs> something about me just won't let, let me rest. So right. yeah, we got back and started going out to San Francisco and bopping around and meeting up with old, old connections. And, and, you know, it was not too long before I was hitting the pavement. Mm. starting to look for opportunities and it was pretty hot. The market was pretty hot. We landed in um, the summer of 2019. Mm. So it didn't take me too long. It took me a few months to find, nice. find a new role. And I think what was unique about it though, is you kind of feel at a loss mm. coming back from abroad to at least to the U S there's not, not everybody's going to look at your resume and say, wow, Mm. you know, Mm. there's, there was a lot of folks looking at my resume and going, okay, well, you know, are you, are you still hitting all the buzz points that's going on here? Right. You know, what's going on in the microcosm of San Francisco Mm. and who do you know? And what tech company are you coming from before this, you know, versus, Oh, look, you worked in all these, you know, across all these markets and you have all this knowledge and mm. it's not a lot of that came through mm. as, as I thought it might have. Even to this day, I, I wish I was leveraging more of mm. my experience abroad than I am. Mm. And that part's, that's tough to, to grapple with. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point. I've heard different things from different people over the episodes in this podcast about well, you know, look at all the the skills that I developed abroad, or maybe it actually propelled their career forward in one way or another, gave them opportunities they might not have had in their you know home cities. And by the time they come back, maybe it's actually beneficial for them. But it sounds like obviously it didn't take away anything from your application for any stretch of the imagination, but maybe trying to get straight back into that uh, Bay Area tech world, maybe maybe there's just more of an emphasis on exactly 
you know, the tools that you're using and maybe the other markets weren't quite as advanced? Do you feel like that was more maybe a San Francisco specific thing? Or I don't know, do you have any other thoughts or ideas for how people can leverage those experiences effectively in, in the job market? Yeah, you know, I think I was able to definitely keep up with technology and in in many areas, you know, Asia was closer to like, for instance, the Chinese market, which is light years ahead in certain spaces, mm-hmm. Japan's light years ahead in certain spaces like robotics. Mm-hmm. So there were trails of, of, of that experience and knowledge that still augmented my resume in a powerful way. But I think there's a little bit of that, like Hollywood, it, mm-hmm. you know, Hollywooditis happening in San Francisco, yeah. where it's sort of like who you know, right. where have you been, <laughs> you know, where where have you come from, sort of like insulars mm-hmm. type thing. That it's just that effect that ha- that you have on a community that's so tightly wound, right, right. Yeah, and and I think also there's there's movement from globalization, mm-hmm. you know, we moved into more of a digital mm-hmm. space. And now after the pandemic and it's, it's just changed the game a little bit on, on the view of, you know, working in other markets. Yeah, that's true as well. Hopefully a bit more mobility going forward or people choosing it for themselves even more. So I think that that's be- what I'd like to do. I, I'm definitely getting the sense and the motivation to find and explore ways that I can like leverage my, my global mm-hmm. experience. Absolutely. And um, or even go back out. Yeah, of course. That's definitely on the table. That's good to hear. <laughs> Happy to hear that. But in those first months when you were coming back, so of course in the back of your mind, when you're abroad, like you said, living in Singapore, wishing that you were able to see family more, maybe old friends, going back to what's comfortable to you back in the United States in, in some respects. And then you actually get there. Did you find that it, it matched your expectations or what type of re-entry culture shock did you experience, if any, on the way back? There's there's a lot of truth to the, to the repatriation woes. Mm. It's It's the whole grass is not always greener effect you know you get back and everybody's been living their lives while they've been gone you know mm-hmm. they they have their own communities they have their own jobs and their routines and and you kind of have to set up new structures around how interacting with the people that you came back to interact with and you know the work pace the the kids in school, that pace and schooling is different. There was culture shocks Mm. around many different corners. (laughs) So it's, it's a gut check for sure. Yeah, I can imagine. But also, I guess, as we wrap up our conversation here, I definitely wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your new foundation and, you know, what you're doing with that, helping people to go abroad. If you could just tell us, you know, the, the broad strokes of what you've been up to with that, of course, why you started it, how far it's gotten so far, and where people can find it online. That would be amazing. Yeah, you know, not to get into uh, the unfortunate details, but we did experience a pretty heavy tragedy that struck our our son, who we lost um, in the first year when we got back in a, in a accident. 
and, you know, rising from those ashes and kind of post-traumatic experience here, we uh, decided to form a foundation called the Live Like Leo Foundation. Mm -hmm. And it's really giving an opportunity for youth to become global citizens by traveling abroad and not just traveling abroad, but also contributing to the communities abroad. So we just sent 16 students, high school to college students last summer to Costa Rica, where they were on a turtle reserve and they did (laughs) consensus data. They interacted with the community. They learned about each other. Everybody was going through sort of post-pan or during pandemic trauma and stress. and, And they were all able to formulate like bonds and experiences outside of their you know, uh, closed sort of space and communities that they were in. And it's just made them big, bolder, better, as we say, global citizens. Mm -hmm. And so our foundation is committed to continuing to sponsor and and provide support to uh, these types of students to go out with our partner, Global Glimpse to Latin American countries and have this experience. And we hope that they all will kind of learn from the experiences we've had, David, further their, their life experiences abroad. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a wonderful organization, obviously built out of quite a tragic scenario and, and, you know, that that hit home for me, you know, only, only as it can, of course, nothing like uh, what Mm -hmm. you and your family have been through, but just the goal of the organization and uh, the positive messages. And for me, I even connected with the Costa Rica part because I think when I was 10 or 11, somewhere around there, I went with my family to Costa Rica for two weeks or so. And that was one of those initial international experiences that I still remember and look back at pictures at. And, And of course, those experiences we have when we're young, you know, high school, elementary school, middle school, all those years, to be able to interact with foreign cultures, to go abroad and, and have an adventure, have an experience, just really sets the stage of, for people to become global citizens and hopefully continue to go abroad and have those experiences like we've had. So, you know, I was I really into the, the foundation from day one, you know, and, and I'm super happy to have you on the show to be able to talk about it, of course, about your experience and, and naturally to share this with our listeners as well in case they want to be able to get involved, to, you know, donate, support their time or their energy or their money. And so, um, you know, if there's anything that they can do now, yeah, just let us know how we can really help the organization to take the next steps forward. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I I definitely relate to what you're saying, you know, with our son, Leo, it's absolutely shaped, you know, he was two and a half when we, when we went to Japan and he, you know, grew up his formative years going to school and being abroad and, the level of ex- inclusion and compassion and kindness and just being blind to any type of differences between all of the mm-hmm. children and, that he crossed paths with. And he brought that back to the U.S. Mm-hmm. And we really saw that his experiences abroad helped open his, you know, his perspective mm-hmm. and that's the kind of thing that we want to pull through with these students, but yeah, definitely, you know, check us out on live like org. 
and you can donate on our platform there or even just buy any of our merch. We've got uh, some fun merch with our logo on it. Also proceeds go to the foundation. Amazing. Well, I'll definitely put that in the show notes. Any other, you know, details around how people can get involved, but it's just a wonderful thing to be able to, you know, see the progress of the organization, your partnership as well, sending students to have these experiences and really to live like Leo. So it's, it's uh, amazing to connect and hear your story, love what you're doing and look forward to seeing where it takes you in the future. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a minute and give us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. It helps new listeners find us and lets us know that we are putting out content that you appreciate. You can quickly find out where and how to rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash expatempire. If you know anyone who would appreciate this podcast, please tell them about it so we can continue growing the global expat empire community. Keep up to date on new expat empire podcast episodes by pressing the subscribe button in the podcasting app of your choice. You can also visit expatempire.com and sign up for our newsletter to get our free ebook, Top 10 Tips for Moving Abroad, right now. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Expat Empire, so be sure to follow us there. We are currently offering free consulting calls to discuss your moving plans and how Expat Empire can help you to achieve them. Please visit our website to schedule your call today. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode in the coming weeks.